Support for today's show comes from The James Altucher Show. The James Altucher Show podcast is insane. This guy has guests like Mark Cuban, Chelsea Handler, William Shatner, Tyra Banks, and hundreds more. There's no rhyme or reason to it. All I know is what one reviewer said, which is that it's like James is always asking what I'm thinking. So check out The James Altucher Show and send him a text at 203-512-2161. The James Altucher, A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R, Show. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also still thinking about Beto O'Rourke because my mom texted me one time. Uh, So here's the full story of that uh, cryptic statement. Uh, My mom lives in Iowa, in southeast Iowa. And one time we were just uh, keeping in touch a few months back. I said, oh, how's it going? And she texted back, doing fine. Beto stood on our coffee shop counter. And that was the text. I was uh, immediately read this and thought, okay, I've heard of Beto O'Rourke. Is this some kind of like form of joke I don't know about? Or like an idiom from Iowa that I'm not familiar with? What's going on? And then I Googled it, and she was just saying what happened. Beto O'Rourke did a campaign stop very early in the Democratic primary campaign and at a coffee shop in my mom's town. He stood on the coffee shop counter to get people's attention, and then that became kind of a wacky meme when he kept standing on tables and countertops and stuff like that. And that became something very prominent about him. However, when's the last time you thought about Beto O'Rourke? And I asked that because, according to the Houston Chronicle, Beto is currently leading an organization called the Powered by People Initiative, which is doing grassroots work to flip key state and local races all over Texas. And here's the thing, whether or not you support Beto O'Rourke or what he believes in or what he professes to want to do, I think the not famous thing where he's doing this little grassroots initiative is much, much more important to your life and the overall politics of the country than the presidential campaign where he had a splashy photo shoot in Vanity Fair and my mom was texting me about him being in uh, coffee shops on top of tables like a crazy person. Uh, The crazy person being Beto, not my mom. She's amazing. And I think that grassroots thing is the kind of actual politics that deserves our attention and is important and is something that it takes a little mental energy to track. And that kind of mental energy is one of many components of today's episode topic. It is why freedom sucks, and that's why we have to defend it. One more time, the topic of this episode is why freedom sucks, and that's why we have to defend it. Because I'm joined by a guest who writes for Cracked and for the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. His true name is Jason Pargin. And we're looking today at the many ways the less flashy news is the important news, in particular because a lot of the flashy news is based on making you afraid. And so we're going to get into all kinds of ways you can check whether that fear is actually relevant, uh, examples of past fears that were super not important, and a few current fears that are. In general, uh, you know, the primary campaign is finally actually kind of happening with some caucuses and votes actually going through in the next few weeks. So it's time to start, if you hadn't already started, uh, it's time to start being someone who is excellent at consuming news about it. I think this show is full of opportunities for you. It's also things that are not too, too hard to do because we're always being told stuff we ought to do. This is something that's worth doing and not overly burdensome. It just takes a little thought. And I don't think you need any more setup than that. So please sit back, 
or stand on your own coffee shop's counter because apparently that is legal, you know, like, <laughs> like no one stopped Beto. I feel like that would be a ticketable offense, like double parking or something, you know, but apparently it's not. You can just do it. Anyway, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Jason, happy 2020, the year it it actually is after a lot of buildup. Happy almost Iowa caucuses. How are you feeling? I'm feeling the beginnings of the anxiety that I know are coming over the next 175 months, however long it takes (laughs) until between now and the November election. You've also written a great column here uh, called Freedom Sucks, and that's why we have to defend it which is the, you know, springing point for this whole episode. It begins a lot with fear and its role in our politics. What exactly sparked you to be thinking about that specifically? I believe when someone is a guest on a podcast or on a show or like a cable news show, they should be required to do like an opening five minutes stating their biases. (laughs) <laughs> like if there's if you got some guy on CNN talking about the debates, he should is be have to start like, hey, yeah, my name is Robert Wilkinson. And I just want to let everybody know I went to high school with Bernie Sanders and he like beat me up several times. He was in like a gang <laughs> that is still coloring my opinion. Like I agree with his politics, but I, you know, when he was in high school, like he, when he led his gang, the West Side Tarantulas, and he threatened me with a switchblade. And so I've just held that against him ever since. It would really make things more clear if they did that. So allow me to state my bias here and my motivation for writing that column and, in fact, my entire worldview. Sure. If I sense that someone is trying to scare me into doing something, I fly into a rage. <laughs> if I if I sense that someone is exaggerating the danger of something or exaggerating the harm of something and that they're doing it to try to make me do something, to buy a product or vote their way or do whatever, I get so upset that I will stop cooperating even if I fully agree. If you have like an anti-smoking campaign and I catch you lying about cigarettes, I will start smoking cigarettes just (laughs) to spite you. I will begin a lifelong tobacco addiction just because I caught you trying to scare me because I feel like it's a form of manipulation. (laughs) I know the root of this bias. I was raised in an evangelical church in a small town in a very red part of America, and they did not have a moral panic that they didn't fully embrace. Like from from Satanism and rock music lyrics to the gay agenda is is brainwashing our children to their secret (laughs) drug messages in Disney movies, like all those urban legends and email forwards that became like part of the faith. (laughs) And looking back years later as an adult, I just resent it. I resent the fact that they didn't just level with me and say, Hey, look, a lot of the rock music you're listening to 
This here is literally a song about Gene Simmons wanting to have sex with a 16-year-old groupie. That's really gross. It's not healthy. It's not a healthy attitude. Like, that's why you shouldn't listen to it. But they didn't right. say that. They said this song Gene Simmons wrote has has hidden Satanism in it that will brainwash you. And if you listen to it, when you die, you will be tortured by demons for eternity. Like, instead of just telling me why they felt like the music was unhealthy, they made up a thing. And that bugs me. So, today, even if my most progressive woke friends on Twitter are saying something that I perceive as them exaggerating the danger or exaggerating harm or whatever, like after Trump had that Iranian general assassinated and the number one trending topic all day on Twitter was World War Three, that annoys yeah. me. It annoys me more than I should. So on today's subject, when we talk about the role fear plays in politics, my column about people becoming more and more afraid and wanting the government to do things to like control more of the discourse, that's where I'm coming from. Anytime someone tries to spread fear and then says, as a result of this thing you're scared of, we want the government to have more power, we want the police to have more power, I bristle at it. You pick out climate change as one thing that is an exception. It's the kind of thing where there's like a long set of, of data and science and reasons to worry about it. And then most of the rest of these panics, and I, I recognize many of the ones you mentioned from my own upbringing in the conservative collar counties of Chicago, a lot of panics people will tell you about are are just things that, that they're really overblowing the immediate consequences or the sub-department of hell that they've invented uh, that you'll go to. Like, there's a lot of making you afraid in order to get you to do a thing. That's frustrating. Don't like it. And I feel like there's this unspoken thing where it's like, well, yeah, but it's for a good reason. Because in the 80s and 90s, drugs were a real problem. The crack epidemic was a real problem. Hard drugs destroy lives. I have known several addicts. So when we talk about, you know, the Just Say No campaign and, and the war on drugs and how it's you know ruined an entire generation of, of young black men in various cities, there's no question they went about it in a horrible way. But yeah. the problem itself was genuine. When they told me in high school, don't smoke crack, that was good advice. I don't look <laughs> back and wish that I had smoked crack. But they could not resist taking it to... If you take one hit off of a joint, that's it. You're going to be doing like they had have those. There's films they would show you. It's like a cautionary tale. And the guy would do one one hit off of a bong at a party. And he was a heroin addict like 72 hours later because they could not just level with us and say, well, you know, the data shows that if you if you start before around age 17, it can cause mental health problems. You know, it does cause a lot of trouble with you know, like motivation and some people not everyone who does marijuana becomes an olympic swimmer like so, you know it does it does cause problems in people's lives it is habit forming you can become dependent on it to where if you're using it to like self-medicate anxiety it's much better to like see a doctor rather than self-medicate with weed because you get to the point where you can't leave the house without being a little bit high they couldn't just say it like that like you know yeah it seems harmless but you know, anything yeah. can be abused, but it's like, no, if you're going to motivate Americans, you got to put a little spice on it. You got to, you got to make it, you got to show them like a 20 minute long, badly directed short film that is hosted by like some eighties sitcom star or something. 
<laughs> where it's like he's like talking to the camera and trying to be like, well, science says that if you do acid, it literally eats holes in your brain cells and, and spreading these urban legends. Well, guess what? When these kids go off to college and they experiment with a joint and realize that they didn't immediately die, you've ruined your credibility with them. Like, what else are you lying about? I feel like it's the same thing today that if you scream World War Three every time Trump tweets about another world leader, it does not take that long before people outside of your own little bubble start to just laugh at you because you're right. just this panicking little thing who just everything is the apocalypse. And I feel like there is this misguided idea that. Well, that's the only way you motivate people. That's the only way you get people to the polls. That's the only way you get people to pay attention is by you know really getting them scared. I disagree with that. I think that long-term it's destructive, but again, that is my bias because that was my own experience. Because my view of religion and the faith and everything is colored by the fact of how much I resent that they wouldn't just level with me about things. And I almost wish it happened more in certain cases. It does seem like there's a backlash against the the people pushing the fear mongering then don't get taken seriously from then on. Because like you said, when somebody says, hey, if you smoke one joint, a Guy Ritchie movie montage will happen and suddenly you're in the thrall of gangsters by the evening, then those people do get let go. At the same time in our in our politics, like you pick out here that there are memes of that Obama was going to be Hitler on one side when he was president, and then there have been memes that Trump will be fully Hitler. And we've done podcast episodes about how there are elements of like German and Italian fascism that line up with Trump policies. But if if people warn too hard, too fast about, oh, this next political decision is going to completely collapse all democracy, I think they still get to usually be TV pundits after that, or they still get to have like their massively online followed blog or YouTube channel or whatever else even though, uh, you know, that didn't happen or will imminently not happen. Please go do a Google image search for the phrase Obama Hitler and note the pages and pages and pages of photoshops of Obama with a Hitler mustache. Now, maybe yeah. not as many as you would get for Obama Muslim, which would seem to conflict, but <laughs> you can do a Google image search for Bush Hitler and then Clinton Hitler and then once you get pre-internet era you don't find as many images because of course no one owned Photoshop in Reagan's time. Right. <laughs> but when we talk about the role of fear in politics it is hard to overstate why we got Trump. And the Obama Hitler stuff I'm worried some of the people listening to this think that that's just a joke or a meme or something. They fully believed Obama was Hitler just as genuinely as some of you believe Trump is Hitler. The gut level anxiety they felt under the Obama presidency was just as strong as the gut level anxiety some of you feel under Trump for the same reasons inside their their media bubble on Fox News or wherever they got it from the Glenn Beck show and all of the many other places you could get like they were just fed a daily stream of outrages things that Obama was doing to take away our freedoms and to take away the freedoms of Christians and freedom loving Americans and all of that 
because we don't agree with their fear and because we think, well, that's a ridiculous thing to be afraid of. How could anyone listen to Obama's, you know, like one of his speeches and hear Hitler? The fact that we disagree doesn't mean their fear didn't exist. Just as like, you know, a little kid is scared of the monster under the bed. That, that kid's fear is real. The monster is not real. But that doesn't make his fear not be real. You know, there are people who have such a fear of eating food that they will starve themselves to death. Their fear is irrational. But to say, well, because it's irrational, it therefore isn't genuine, is you're being obtuse. Like that person obviously actually feels the fear, right? People with yeah. anxiety actually feel the fear. So when I talk about like the role fear plays in politics, you have to appreciate that other people are just as scared as you are. And when you hear me talk about how angry that stuff makes me, I feel like we're seeing the results of it. Like, I don't feel like my annoyance at fear mongering is an invalid thing because I think a lot of where we are as a country, the people who, you know, when they hear people talk about like the green new deal and adapting to global warming, the people who object to that are not all just people that own stock and oil companies. These are people who have been told for a couple decades now that this is a communist plot to have the government seize industry and seize land and to take away your freedoms, that they have made up this hoax Mm -hmm. specifically so that they can imprison you or do whatever. They are as scared of taking action against global warming as you are of global warming. I think their fear is irrational, but it is genuine. You even have the current president has has tweeted in the past that it's a hoax from China. So then it's a foreign power trying to take over. Yes, that it's a hoax from China to try to get us to commit suicide as a society by doing away with all of these, you know, all the economic growth and the energy and the things that make the country go to make us voluntarily like cripple ourselves. And then, of course, once China takes over the world, they don't believe in like human rights and things like that. And there you go. We will be sent to like gulags for speaking against the Chinese government. Anyone listening to this who thinks that's insane, I believe that if I could rewind by 20 years and put you on the exact same media diet they've been on, listening to Fox News for your news, listening to talk radio for your commentary, or listening these days, they're they're all on YouTube, but in getting three, four, five hours of that every day, every day, every day, I think you would be in the exact same position saying the exact same thing because no human is immune to that kind of thing. And also, it's it's good to think about how we're all under a cognitive load of the information we're taking in and the messages we're being presented. And you pick out in the column that even in this advanced 2020 era where the year is futuristic, we are still not that good at processing that cognitive load, or at least it takes a lot of labor. Uh, and that's something we got to figure out. And when we talk about cognitive load... In some ways, it is more stressful to live in a free society than it is to live where someone is telling you to do everything. You know, when the government just assigns you what you're going to eat that day and what toothpaste you're going to use or whatever. Whereas in America, you have to figure it out. And it's not just those tiny decisions. It's everything. There's the bumper sticker that, you know, was around after 9-11. It's like, freedom isn't free. And 
I kind of hate that those people claimed that slogan because <laughs> they just meant it as, well, freedom means sometimes you got to launch cruise missiles at somebody on the other side of the world at exactly zero cost or risk to you whatsoever. Right. <laughs> and sometimes you have to watch a war happen on TV from the comfort of your sofa. That's, that's the cost of freedom. It's like, no, <laughs> the cost of freedom means that in exchange for being in a free society, we as individual citizens are taking on a tremendous burden every day. You know, the freedom yeah. to pick your career means that you are adrift after college. Like you are having to make these high stakes decisions in your teens that dictate the rest of your life and you could get laid off or your, you know, the business you work for could go belly up. You know, it's not like some system before where in like a feudal society, when you were the family of a farmer, you just took over the farm. Like that was it. There were no options. Well, you know, now we have options. We treasure that and we have rights and we have the system where the government stays out of our business to a large degree. But that also means that you are taking on a burden that the government can't make go away. You go shopping every day. You've got 300 different types of shampoo on the shelf. And some of those shampoos don't do what they say or they don't work. And you've got like every day you have to make hundreds of little decisions and your brain is just an organ it's not magic. It, it can only make so many decisions before it just starts shutting down and, and offloading the decisions on somebody else. Freedom yeah. means that you have the political and legal equivalent of that, where you have to do a bunch of research you know, into what these candidates stand for. You have to sort through the BS. You have to figure out what's a lie and what's propaganda. You have to, there's all this stuff coming in and you have an obligation to figure it out because there's a point where you get so anxious and get so exhausted where you kind of want to throw your hands up and say, I just don't want anything to do with this. I'm telling you, there are very powerful people who want you to say that. And so they feed your fear and they try to push you to a place where it's just like, you know what? Uh, you've got me so scared of the other side. I'll just go along with whatever you say. It's sort of like a lot of choices we make when we sign a, a terms of service or something for a modern tech thing where we say, I will trade some freedom or some knowledge for convenience. Like it's, it's just simpler. It's just easier. I'm very busy. And uh, that's the way I'm going to do it. Taken care of. And it's perfectly justifiable. You're just a human being. I mean, how much, how many hours a week do you have to devote to politics with everything else, with your work, with, if you got family, you got kids, your bills, whatever time you try to set aside for hobbies. And you got all these people in your ear, like mad at you for not taking time to stop and smell the roses. <laughs> like there's yeah. actual stress from like, well, you're not living in the moment. That's your problem. It's like, oh, so I, now I got to. I got to try to figure out how to live in the moment too. Like I, I'm now, I'm now to blame for not doing enough, <laughs> for not meditating every morning, for not doing enough, enough yoga, everything I eat in my refrigerator, I've been told causes cancer, you know, in your, your relationships, your marriages, all this stuff. And on top of that, to pick out a candidate, I see the appeal of just, there's two, there's two to pick from each time. There's two guys. And they very, very broadly either agree or disagree with your position, but that's it. This stage, this primary stuff, when you've got 
eight hundred candidates running for it. <laughs> and they're all they're all sniping each other and they're all lying about each other and depending on who you talk to, it's not clear which one of them is the communist and which one is the secret friend of the bankers. Right. Yeah, I get why no one participates. I do. I get it. I don't like it. And knowing about this stuff is part of my job. Even getting paid to do it, I don't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, same. I think that there was this particular narrative around the Republican 2016 primary, too, where you'll just see headlines that are like, another chaotic primary event. And like the whole thrust of it is just, there are so many people running with like no substance about why there are so many people running or what their differences are. And it's like, if you think about it, not that strange that more than two or three people want to be the president of the United States. Like, it's not weird that there are a bunch of people running. We just don't like it on some level because it's a lot to track and, and handle. I know this is difficult to manage. I, I get that. I guess my thing is when we teach like little kids about the government you know, we give them all the boring stuff about like how a bill becomes a law and, and all that stuff. I wish there was a class on like how to process information, like how to read the headlines, how to find out what's true. And I wish part of that class was like on moral panics because we all heard about, you know, the Red Scare. And we all heard about, you know, the way they they really ramped up that fear of communism for other reasons, to try to break the labor unions, to try to silence dissent, you know, yeah. and we, we got that lesson. You know, the lesson is, well, don't hate communists. And the lesson should be there's a mechanism here that you're going to see over and over again. And when a candidate comes along or a pundit or a company comes along and says, everyone panic. Like, like, there's no time to explain, but you need to do what we say because there's a crisis. We should immediately be extremely skeptical. Not yeah. saying to always reject it. Sometimes when they say a hurricane is coming, there is actually a hurricane coming. That That's not always a lie. <laughs> when they say right. smoking is killing millions of people with lung cancer... Yeah, they that was it turned out that was true, but it that was something that they knew because there was mountains of data that they had to carefully collect. It is fine to have an extremely high standard for when you're going to feel the emotion of fear. And when someone shows up and says, "Be scared and do this," the burden is on them to justify why you should be scared, and we do it the opposite right now. Social yeah. media measures engagement by how many people just interact with a post. And if the post says, hey, you know, we found razor blades in the baby food. And it's just an image showing like a picture of a razor blade and baby food. No source, no date, no data, <laughs> nothing. Just that right. image. It will get shared five million times. Meanwhile, the exhaustive explanation someone else has to do is like, no, this is a hoax. It's years old. It's not true will not get shared. There is a bias toward fear-mongering and toward context-free fear-mongering where we are almost more likely to believe something if it's scary but totally unsourced and totally illogical. The big trend on Facebook now, or at least what I see, is like warning about human trafficking because it's like, well, if you see this 
next to a restroom, it means that they're going to kidnap any women that come in there. It's like this is because they've heard the term human trafficking on the news. And so that's like the thing that they think it means like white women are being kidnapped and taken to other parts of the world. And so you completely strip away the context, strip away any kind of evidence or anything, and it just spreads around the world before the debunking can even get out of bed. Those are straight up hoaxes playing off of a real thing. The same as there's yeah. always some new alleged drug craze going around where it's like, oh, the teens these days, they were like pouring vodka into their eyeballs or something like oh. that. Or well, there was a, there was butt chugging where they were yeah. putting they were putting like handles of vodka into their butts. And that was a yeah. faster way to drink than your mouth. That was the that yeah. was the thing going on, apparently. But not alcoholism is a real thing. Teen alcoholism is a real thing. Yeah. Drinking <laughs> vodka through your butthole is not a real thing. But because they're like the only motivation of social media engagement because Facebook will reward that person's Facebook page for spreading the lie because the lie equals engagement. Facebook makes money. Therefore, it's good for Facebook. Therefore, it's good for your page. Therefore, it's good for you. So it's yeah. there's this incentive at every stage to be scared of the wrong things. I think that is lethal to a free society because my position is that if you are going to live in a free society, if you're going to be a functional citizen in a free society, you cannot be a fearful person. We cannot be a fearful people. Being fearful and being like constantly afraid makes you easy to manipulate. And the entire concept of America, the entire concept that the citizens are going to take on the load and the burden of choices and risk in exchange for freedom means that you have to have an attitude of not flying into a panic about every little thing. You can't be terrified of your neighbors. You can't be terrified of refugees. You can't be terrified of people with you know other sexualities or, or anything like you just can't have that mindset or else someone is always going to come along and say, Hey, Put me in power, put me in charge of your life, and I'll take your fear away. Yeah, that's so true. And, and of those crises, the one I, I think of the most lately is the looming crisis panic fear of gay marriage. Uh, even just a few years ago, I feel like when I was a kid, there was a like national mainstream belief. Some people just believed being gay is wrong and, and a, a choice they made, but also a lot of people believed that if we started letting gay people have marriage licenses and, and, and the actual legal institution of marriage, there would be some kind of bad thing happening. And it was it was some sort of vague social collapse that was going to come if we did it. And then June of 2015, the Supreme Court in Obergefell versus Hodges allowed gay marriage nationwide. It had already been allowed in a few states and a few places. And I'm legitimately interested in knowing if there were any actual negatives to gay marriage, we should still keep it. It's obviously the rights everyone should have. I feel like almost every policy has some kind of downsides along with the upsides. And I think that panic about gay marriage was a panic about absolutely nothing. I understand that it is a change, but I don't think anyone was was concretely negatively impacted, even though nationwide people were voting for specific politicians partly or fully because they were opposed to gay marriage. And then those politicians got to change tax codes and lead us into wars and, and do the things they wanted to do on the back of a fear about nothing. It's crazy. And in fact, if you go read about the court cases, when it came time 
to actually present in court like what are the harms that come from from gay marriage or the hypothetical harms because it had been legalized in certain states. Yeah. They really had nothing because, you know, their (laughs) whole thing was like, well, if you devalue straight marriage, then marriage becomes meaningless. So the courts were like, okay, well, can you show where divorce rates went up? Can you show where straight people stopped getting married? Can you show anything? And they couldn't, you know, and even the stuff like gay adoption, like, well, they'll be able to adopt children. It's like, okay, can you show any data where children adopted by gay couples do worse? No, they couldn't. They do better, it turns out, partly because (laughs) the standard is so much higher for them to actually get one. And at every stage, they were asked, provide some quantifiable data showing that there's harm here. And they just could not. I'm not an attorney. I'm not a legal expert. Ultimately, my understanding of the court's position was you can't, ultimately, your only argument is marriage has to be between man and woman because that's what it's always been, that that's not an argument when it comes to the law. Because under the law, if someone is saying they're being denied rights or whatever, now the burden is on you to explain why the current law actually is better for everyone. And they couldn't do it. There was, they never had a standing for that. And yet they had won that argument for thousands of years, right? <laughs> right up until that moment, just based on this nebulous idea that, you know, this is a deviant behavior and you're encouraging it by legitimizing it in the eyes of the law. You cannot understand the current political environment here in 2020 and the environment since 2016 unless you understand how terrified these people were of gay marriage, how terrified they were of, of Obamacare and government run healthcare, all of these things that to the rest of us, I think that we thought of them as good things and we knew there were some crazies out there who were upset, but well, these people are always mad. Well, okay, but they vote. (laughs) And yeah, the year after, you know, Obamacare was passed, the Democrats were blown out of Congress in the backlash because of people so scared and so insulted by this massive communist scheme to take over our health care that they went to the polls and they outnumbered the people who wanted to preserve health care or, or whatever. And it's like good news, especially from this gay marriage example, but also from others where, for example, the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act was really more of a scheme to put people on health insurance, which is good. I guess it's hard for the media to profit from reporting good news, but it's nice to be able to go and say, hey, not only is gay marriage legal nationally now in 2015, but it was legal in Massachusetts as early as 2004, in Iowa as early as 2009. We have a body of statistical evidence that it's fine. Also, just any straightforward reading of the Constitution and American values, everyone should have rights. It's all okay And you can also stop listening to this set of public figures who tried to make you afraid of it. Like, isn't that good news? You just winnowed out some uh, voices that are making you afraid instead of happy and healthy and the most uh, successful person you can be. And the thing is, there's such an easy conservative case to be made for gay marriage. The main case that drove it all was based on an inheritance. The, you had a you know a lesbian couple, and then one of them passed away, and then you know if it had been a straight couple, you don't have to have a will for the stuff to pass to your spouse, right? Like that's automatic, even if there's no will. You know, they brought this on the grounds of okay, forget about all of your stuff about sin and sex and all that. 
this is an issue where we are guaranteed equal protection under the law. And under the law, a straight couple, their affairs would have been handled a certain way. But because we are a same-sex couple, they were handled a different way. And in a way that, that effectively materially costs us. You would think every conservative out there would be saying, hey, that's right. How dare the government say this marriage, you know, the inheritance should be processed this way, but we don't approve of this marriage, so we're not going to do it. It's like, that's government overreach, buddy. Yeah, let's let's fight big, evil government trying to, to interfere in people's bedrooms. You know, that's communism right there. The government telling you who, can, who you can marry. Like you would think you would have the libertarian side would be the ones like screaming the the loudest. What a, businesses right. that are yours? What what genitals we have? You're asking me to go to the government to get a certificate that guarantees that we don't have matching genitals? That's <laughs> such an intrusion. A conservative would say, "Who cares what I do in my own home?" And you know that's that's freedom right there. But it's not that simple, obviously. Well, there was that conservative meme that there would be death panels based on, on government health care. Like, now I'm imagining a meme of, like, there's going to be genital panels. They'll be checking everyone. Like, they'll be rounding us up and examining. Right. Like, it sounds that way. <laughs> but meanwhile, you had conservative states putting in, passing these laws about trans bathroom use. Yeah. Which the only plausible way to enforce that law would be to check genitals and birth certificates outside of every public restroom. Right. To have the <laughs> government checking genitals on the way to the conservative case, the small government case for a yes, this is what we should have to make sure that someone <laughs> who, who uses the men's restroom is not merely passing for a man or however they view it. Is such a mirror image, bizarro world version of what they claim they're for, <laughs> which is that you shouldn't be infringing on our freedoms unless it is life or death. Saying that people can use whichever restroom matches the, the gender they identify as, it's like, no, no, we need the government to pass a law and use the threat of violence to stop that from happening. Those laws are based on fear. It was based yes. on a moral panic of the trans men or the trans women are using the wrong restrooms and they are attacking our children. Something that, to my knowledge, has never happened. The only yeah. people that have ever been harassed in a bathroom over the bathroom they used are the trans people. It was never, you know, this whole thing is like, well, men will just claim to be women and then they will go molest young girls in the bathrooms. That was not based on a thing that had ever happened. Trans people yeah. have existed forever. It's not a fad. The fear let people who are ostensibly small government support this massive expansion of government power that either either the law is completely symbolic, the law is that you have to have your freaking birth certificate with you before, before you enter a public restroom and present it to someone who is there to check it. That is what fear does to people. Uh, that is why I wish everyone uh, on all sides had a built-up immunity to moral panics, immunity to any kind of threat like this, where they would come back and say, okay, show me the incidents that have happened that are causing you to pass this law. Show me show me the harm. Show me the thing that has occurred. Because, you know, the Constitution of the United States is a list of things the government cannot do. Right. It's a list of limitations. <laughs> Congress shall make no law. 
it's like that for a reason. That was supposed to be the whole concept is that we feel like, you know, concentrated power corrupts. And so the only way to avoid the corruption that comes with power is to disperse the power so that it's held by many different parties. And within the government, there's all these checks and balances. And then within the individuals, it's up to you what happens on your own piece of land. It's up to you what happens inside your own home. But fear to me seems like it's toxic to that idea. Like it is it is the, the tumor in the body of a free person. It's the thing that can make the whole thing just shut down. We mentioned earlier that there was like more voting in the case of people being afraid of Obamacare. There was also has been more voting in midterm elections since Trump has been president because people are opposed to it. But we've also got an interesting thing you pick out here where fear can also shut down voters completely. And and I'd say probably does that more often because we've got a lot of stats here about partly just how low turnout is in general, but also how it seems like if people are afraid of constant crisis after crisis after crisis, they might come to believe, okay, everything's doomed, nothing matters, so I'm going to save that morning I would have voted and use it for, I don't know, watching TV or, or eating food or something. Yeah, and I would like you to run through some of the numbers because I think turnout, even in supposedly high turnout, this is the election that's going to thwart the apocalypse races yeah <laughs> is lower than what people probably think because especially the 2018 midterms so like the main national election after donald trump and other republicans getting elected in 2016 the 2018 midterm election has been pretty widely described as a spike in voting it was pretty much called a blue wave except for certain senate situations where it just couldn't be and the turnout of eligible voters in it was 50.3 percent so marginally more than half of the eligible voters bothered to vote in an election that I think in both parties was pretty strongly messaged and understood to be critical to the entire future of the country. Because either this is when we really make America great again, or this is when we stop new Hitler. And that's the highest midterm turnout since 1914, folks, which was a long time ago. Uh, none of us were around. Since 2018, there have been a few special elections and also there are a few offices in the U.S. that just get voted for in an off year or an odd numbered year uh, for no clear reason to me. But the governor of Kentucky got elected in 2019. They, that's just the interval they do it at. And the turnout for the Kentucky gubernatorial election spiked to over 42 percent. So it's still way less than half. But that was a spike over the 2015 election for that office being 30.7 percent. So less than a third. We also got the 2019 Virginia legislature, because for some reason Virginia does their legislatures in odd-numbered years. That turnout for Virginia state legislative seats spiked to less than 40%. Uh, so not very many people. In 2015, it was only 29%. So if there are constant crises going on, you would think that would motivate most people to vote. Instead, we've got a situation where in basically every American election, no, truly every American election, because real turnout would be high. In every American election, we've got most people not voting or or barely a fraction over the majority voting, uh, which indicates that people either don't believe the fear, but also don't bother voting, which is still not good, or they are so afraid that they're kind of shutting down. This is an important point, and it's a complicated one, because... Even among those people who voted, like, let's look at that that 50% being a really high water mark. Among that 50%, a huge number of those are 
uninformed voters. And I yeah. don't mean that as an insult. I mean, if you were to stop them on the way out of the polls and quiz them, okay, you know, you, you voted for not just president, but also senator. Like, like, can you, do you remember the name of your senator? Do you remember <laughs> the name of your, the congressman in your district? Do you know what, are you familiar with the scandal or other? And they almost certainly would not. And then if you asked them for details about, you know, do you know the unemployment rate? Do you know what the various different unemployment rates are and why some of them are misleading? It's only a small fraction of political junkies, people who really follow it every day. So even among that turnout, the number of people who actually devote a lot of time to learning about the issues and knowing what they're talking about is pretty small. Yeah, It is hard to square that with what you see on social media, what you can go onto Facebook and see what your grandparents are sharing. And when every meme, every thing is about the end of the world about, you know, either, either Trump has been sent by God to stop the apocalypse or Trump, you know, is putting children in, in cages. Um, not that those things are equally true statements. It's not my point. My point is they are equally emotional statements and that you would think they would be equally motivating, but it's hard to believe there are people who are like functioning adults out in the world who have not heard about the refugees, about the children being kept in cages, separated from parents, all of these things, you would think there would be total awareness of all of them. And many of the people who like and share the memes about the children in the cages and all of that, statistically, a lot of them are not going to vote. We, we just know this. We, we know from the turnout, like there's no way that everyone who is, posted on social media saying this is the apocalypse election and the world is depending on us to do the right thing here. There's no way all of those people are showing up to the polls. We know they're not either their votes are being accidentally thrown in the trash or else posting the memes is as far as they got. I personally believe that if you are inundated with enough bad news that for many people of a certain personality type, it does not spur them to action. It simply kind of has a numbing effect that we've talked about on previous podcasts, specifically the one about like people's obsession with the end of the world. If those yeah. beliefs and those fears actually motivated people to useful action, I would be less bothered by it. But I think it doesn't. And in fact, I think some of the most intelligent people some of the people that do the most research and read the most tend to be the ones that get the most discouraged and will say, well, nothing's going to change. You know, it's going to change anyway. There's this hopelessness where the more information you have, like kind of the less you want to do anything because I don't know. It's kind of like when you get it in your head to start an exercise regimen. And so you like buy a treadmill, but shopping for and buying the treadmill satisfies the urge. <laughs> like I've done my part. I bought this treadmill. You never actually got on it, but it's like, well, of course I care about fitness. I spent a thousand bucks on this treadmill. Don't I care? Like the fact that I don't get up every day and actually walk on the thing is irrelevant. Well, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, well, of course I care about politics. I read about it every day. Right. Well, it's the same thing. It's like you bought the treadmill, but you're not you're not actually doing the action. You're not voting or or volunteering or donating if you have the money. All of the things that actually affect change, because that grassroots stuff matters. It does, even for victories that were won in court, like the gay marriage thing. 
there was a ton of grassroots stuff done before that because to some degree you got to have the public on your side you know marijuana legalization good god ask legalization people how long they've been fighting this fight the fact that we could be not far away from having legalization nationwide is insane when you think about where we were when i was just a kid but there have been people, you know, since the 60s trying to get legalization done. They've devoted their lives to it, canvassing, going to, you know, in front of city councils, going to seminars, marching. And all of that hard work, it's paying off. It does pay off. Every big thing that's happened has paid off because of those people actually leaving the house and not, not retweeting like alarmist memes, but the people <laughs> actually going out there, you know, and, 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 gathering the data and you know and making the case you know building special interest groups and uniting and and putting the money where it needs to be it's much easier to kind of just follow politics like a sport and wake up every day and say okay what what are we outraged about today what's the scandal today what are people yelling about today and it's kind of exciting but it doesn't, I don't believe, motivate you to be a better citizen or a better political activist or anything else. Well, I think most people who consume a lot of political news and are aware of it have made a decision in either direction about the current president. Like, it, it's hard to read a pile of stuff about it and not feel any way either direction or be like, I don't know, still thinking the people who have consumed a ton of that, there's like a third block of Americans who just don't believe either message, as far as I can tell, based on their voting record. Like 49.7% of eligible voters did not come out to vote in 2018. Some of them face obstacles in terms of having time to get off work or get to the polls, or their state government messed with their registration and then they just uh, were disenfranchised. But a huge chunk of those people have heard both messages about the government. And it's not that they're smart enough to not be afraid of either one. It's that they, I think, are just worn out of being afraid of things and don't believe either thing about it being the best thing that's going to help us a bunch or the worst thing that's going to burn everything down. There are a lot of people who just have had so many fear-mongering messages cross their desk that they, they've taken the phone off the hook. They're just not listening. Yeah, or you could say they've heard so many promises that didn't, you know, that didn't come true on my Twitter, I see headlines that go viral. It's a lot of stuff like, well, another coal mine has shut down. I guess Trump wasn't able to save coal after all because he ran partly on this ridiculous premise <laughs> that he was going to yeah. bring coal back. And coal is not coming back. It's it's never coming back. It's a dead technology that we're just phasing out. It doesn't matter what president, what any American president does all over the world, they've decided that coal is going out, and so every company has to shift to not using coal. They're divesting from it. Yeah. That was a ridiculous campaign promise, and it's very fun to say, well, see, guys, I bet you realize Trump is just a reality TV show host. and <laughs> He actually <laughs> cannot. But those same people will then describe to you what they went through during the Obama years and say Obama did nothing to help us. And that we've been completely set adrift and we voted for Trump because what did we have to lose? And now you're you're spiking the football at our feet saying, ha ha, they're not wrong when they're like, well, there's nobody who's for me. There's nobody standing up for me. I, you know, I voted for Trump because he made some noise like he was standing up for me. But yeah, I've, it's one more disappointment. So you're right. I shouldn't have voted. You're right. I should have stayed home. And it also, we've got stuff here about how 
politicians and the media in general oversimplify what government does. Like when Trump was making that coal promise, not only was he promising a thing that can't happen, but I think he was also oversimplifying, you know, what the president does and stuff. Even if a Sanders type is the Democratic nominee, they're going to be hamstrung by some of the rest of the government. Like Trump was promising he could just do anything he wanted at all. And well, weirdly, he kind of could in the first two years because he had a completely compliant Congress and and, uh, mostly compliant courts. It seems like as we have politicians promise, I am the one who can resolve your fears. They're not only using fear to mess with you, they're also kind of over promising on what a single politician can do. There's no wall. He didn't repeal, Obama, repeal Obamacare. Yeah, I mean the, the two the two pillars of his entire campaign. You know he couldn't get that done, even with even having both houses of Congress. You know, conservative Supreme Court. No, it, the thing about building it and making Mexico pay for it that that was a mm-hmm. non-starter. It, like yeah. it, it didn't matter. He's every president in the campaign talks like they're they're going they're getting elected king. You know, I'm sure some people who are mad at Trump right now are mad because he wasn't, he hasn't been Trump enough. Like, where's the big cartoonish giant wall he kept describing and, and that would have like rabid dogs roaming along the base of it? Where is that? Why, why didn't that stuff come to pass? Yeah, it seems like when they had both houses for two years, the main piece of legislation they got through was a tax cut which took us from a economy that's doing pretty well to an economy that's doing pretty well. Like they don't, they didn't get any immediate tangible symbol of their enormous success. Uh, And it's probably very frustrating because like you say, he pitched uh, what he would do and how things would work in an extremely simple and transactional and good feeling way of, of pitching things. You see that pattern uh, and we've got things here about how, again, freedom isn't free in the sense that as a citizen, you need to like care about details and information and stuff because otherwise we're kind of screwed. The idea of, you had mentioned the concept of running against like a do-nothing Congress, like claiming yeah. that Congress isn't isn't doing anything or the Congress is holding up all of the great things you would like to accomplish and why that is kind of a stupid thing to ever say. One of the many blunt Donald Trump tweets uh, of the world, uh, this one's from November 24th of 2019. He tweeted, quote, Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, AOC, and the rest of the Democrats are not getting important legislation done, hence the do-nothing Democrats, capitals for each of those. USMCA, National Defense Authorization Act, gun safety, prescription drug prices, and infrastructure are dead in the water because of the Dems. End quote. For one thing, they passed that USMCA since then, so that was just in progress. (laughs) But also, it's a thing that then I only saw because AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, quote tweeted it with, quote, in my first 11 months, I've co-sponsored 339 pieces of legislation, authored 15, took on Big Pharma with my colleagues in hearings that brought prep generic a year early and exposed abuse of power. Uh, And then goes on to say all Trump's done is put kids in jail and been corrupt. It's the kind of thing where that is not new having a president run against the do-nothing Congress I read David McCullough's biography of Harry Truman recently, and uh, Truman ran a basically just populist campaign to get elected in 1948 against Thomas Dewey, which was a very close race. And the thing that pretty much tipped it to Truman was that he just kept branding the Republican Congress he was dealing with as the do-nothing Congress, even though it was 
extremely active. While the 80th Congress that Truman called the Do-Nothing Congress was, was in office and doing things, they passed stuff like the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after World War II. And also the Truman Doctrine was something they supported in legislation. Named after Harry Truman, you'd think he'd be happy. But that kind of thing was enough to get him reelected because we like our politics simple and it's very easy to understand one strong president, good, bunch of uh, unknown congressmen, bad. Very simple. And a lot of the legislation are things that are not bitter, divisive, emotional subjects. And so the media just doesn't cover it. Yeah. Because it, it's, you know, if there's like, unfortunately, this, the defense spending bill that apparently is not controversial. Both both parties agree on that the defense budget should be like seven hundred and twenty billion dollars a year, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's fine. Like, like we're we're going to argue about trans people using bathrooms extensively and that kind of thing because that gets people fired up. You know, it makes people mad. It gives them gives them something to get upset about. To be fair, there's there's lots of legislation that just gets passed to kind of keep the country running, and we as the public. Don't pay attention because there's nothing to get mad about there. There's not the thing that gives us a reason to be scared of the other side or they're trying to do this and we must stop them. Ideally, if you're following politics, you would not just be following the emotional stuff because the other stuff is actually just as important. But if it's something that doesn't neatly fit into left versus right, small government versus big government or Christian versus communist, whatever they, you know, the anti-Christian forces that are trying to push the gay agenda that if it doesn't fit neatly into that conflict, then we don't want to know about it, but you should know about it. If you only understand politics in terms of angels versus demons, you don't actually understand politics because we kind of boil it all down to just these, these same few things. And the reason why I think the most boring candidate is probably going to win is because it's like, well, we're so scared of Trump. We can't risk it. People know Joe Biden. They remember him from the Obama years. They've seen him do stuff in the White House before. They know he's not crazy. The more you paint Trump as the as an apocalypse, the more people are going to run to Biden. Well, yeah. if that frustrates you, if you say, well, he doesn't excite me. He's not like a vision for the future. He's 107 years old. Blame fear. Because he is the candidate of people who are really, really scared of Trump. He's the one they're going to run to because he seems like the safest because that's the recognized brand. He spent eight years in the White House. That fear is so powerful that not only are many people voting based on just what they've seen about polls this time around, like, well, that seems like the safe way to win, so we'll do that. That's also what happened the previous presidential election, at least to an extent. Not, not that Hillary Clinton wasn't an extremely qualified candidate, but some of the support for her was, well, she's the most established person. So that seems to be the safest thing that makes the most sense. And it didn't work. And we're just going to do the, I'm afraid, so I picked the sensible one again, maybe. It's, it's very shocking that even, even at not working four years prior is not a deterrent to repeating it. If you are in a state of fear all the time, not just in this context, in any context, you're not going to push for bold action. You're not going to push for individual freedoms. You're not going to take any kind of bold stance on anything because scared people don't do that. That's one reason why every authoritarian government likes a scared populace, right? Yeah, You know, this is why I admire in other countries, you see people taking to the streets and the protests you're seeing in Iran right now, 
you know, that takes something to get out and go out there and, and face down the police and, you know, demand freedom, demand accountability. If you've been scared your whole life or been trained to be afraid of the authorities your whole life, that is really something to get out and do that kind of thing. And especially to demand like a, a change in a direct and democratic way. Cause also uh, we've got a bit of stuff here. You've picked out about how when people are afraid, they'll often not only pick what seems like simple and easy, but also try to reach for a solution like, Oh, well there's this bad message out there. Why don't we censor it? Right. Cause I know it's bad. So we all probably agree it's bad. We'll just censor it and then it's done. And that doesn't really work. You have to do like the trickier thing of, debating that idea and arguing against it. And I will be happy to announce my second bias, which is that I make a living and I put food on the table <laughs> by expression, right? Yeah. And by saying things that are outside of what you would normally say in polite company or are stating strong opinions that other people don't like and using language that is considered impolite. If anyone has read my books, the whole idea is that they things that happen are outrageous and they are described in an outrageous way. So the column you mentioned, I had cited a poll. The numbers are all over the place. That poll had 60% of millennials supporting rewriting the First Amendment to further restrict it, to, to like fight hate speech and basically any kind of dangerous speech. Other polls have it as low as the high teens. Basically, what I found when trying to find polls in this subject is that, one, it varies widely in how you ask the question, as with all polls. Two, no one has any idea what the First Amendment is or what it actually protects. <laughs> and three, that all of the polls warning about threats on free speech are from right-wing sources. That I'm having to go to like Breitbart saying free speech is under attack. Because they've made this a left versus right issue, that the left wants to restrict your speech. And in their circumstances, it's all like, well, these days, if a comedian tells a racist joke, you know, that's enough for them to not be allowed at that comedy club anymore. And they're framing free speech under attack under those terms. I do not, do not want free speech to become a right wing issue the same way that patriotism is now purely a right-wing thing. If I see a, yeah. a, an American flag bumper sticker, I do not assume that that person voted for Bernie Sanders. Right. Like, that's just the way it is. If you've got a giant eagle on the back of your pickup truck, I am assuming you voted Republican. I hate that they own patriotism like that. I hate that that's become, and I do not want, if I see a year from now somebody that says, you know, free speech is important for everyone, I do not automatically think, oh, that's a Trump voter. That would be horrible yeah. <laughs> because it is not a left versus right issue. Freedom of expression is one of those cases where after you hear enough destructive opinions, you will have the urge to say the police should be able to stop that person from saying things like that. It is a natural urge. It is very easy logically to get there because after all, if you... Alex picked up the phone and used your power of speech mm -hmm. to call a hitman and you <laughs> expressed the idea, I will pay you $5,000 to kill Jason. That would not be protected speech. That would be you ordering a hitman to kill me. So it is very easy to say, well, but if you think about it, if you're out in public 
saying something equally awful about a group or a person or whatever, that's practically the same thing. So the police should be able to arrest you for saying it. Yeah. People also, who express... also no understanding of current hitman rates. Come on, it's, it's way lower than that. They're really uh, yeah, and they're a lot economy... like Fiverr or Uber or something at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, you pay for gas. Go do it. <laughs> so I strongly, strongly bristle. Even if you say, "Well, yeah, but I only want to restrict hate speech." It's like, okay, what I hear when you say that is, I want to give Donald Trump police powers to arrest people. <laughs> based on what he believes is hate speech. Because after all, what group is more marginalized than unborn fetuses? What group is more under threat than police officers? So that podcast you put out, that t-shirt you sold that was pro-abortion or anti-police, that's hate speech. So it's one of those things where we have historically seen when you give the government that power and that kind of power it winds up curling back on the very people it's supposed to protect because all through the war on drugs this was always sold to us as we've got to do this for the children and we've got to do this to save these black communities so sure you may think it's scary when the cops kick in a door and drag everyone out of the home because they smelled marijuana when walking past, but it's, it's to protect them. It's to protect the, the inner city communities from the ravages, the scourge of these drugs. It's like, okay, well, are you, are you funding like rehab clinics and stuff? It's like, <laughs> Oh God, no, no, we, right. it's just, we're rolling up with tanks, but they sold it to the American public on to protect these marginalized people. We have to roll in with tanks and guns for their own good. This has been the story over and over and over again is when someone comes to you and says, Hey, there's all of these like racist podcast and YouTube channels. you like, we've, we've obviously got to put a stop to that. So we're going to start like a government agency where when you make like a podcast, you just submit it to us first and then we'll approve it and then it can go live. It's really the only way to stop, to stop this stuff from happening. I'm not going to be on board with that. And the more you try to scare me with, well, but what if, couldn't they have done that with Hitler and the Nazis? Like it wouldn't, they, could they have stopped Hitler if they had stopped them from spreading that message? I just don't think you have thought through in 2020, what it would look like to silence all speech you believe is hateful, even if it legitimately is. Yeah. The process by which you would have to police YouTube and every podcast platform, every whatever other platform that would spring up if those as those try to crack down on things, you have brought about the exact authoritarianism that you're trying to scare us about. You pick out very interestingly that if we wanted like a to envision a 2020 version, it would be some more aggressive version of the current Chinese government where there's a surveillance state and, and protesters being beaten up in Hong Kong. And that's not ostensibly not what we want if we're trying to protect, uh, you know, freedom. That's not good. And also not really working. 
Yeah. <laughs> it is not that hard to get around. You know, like they filter their internet. The whole thing with you can't get photos of the Tiananmen Square massacre. If you try searching that on their Google, you don't get it. You don't get those photos. You, you know, they've, they filter everything. They carefully filter what movies show in their theaters. But in the information age, these people can use a VPN. They can, you know, there's all sorts of illicit means by which they can get what they want to see. It's happening more in, you know, it happens in North Korea. It doesn't matter how hard you crank down today in this environment with the ability, you think about smartphones and social media. If there's some kid, there's some teenage kid that wants to read like, uh, name, name me a really racist book. What's a book written by like Nazis or something? I'm, I'm not creative. Mein Kampf. If you want to stop a kid from reading that, when that text could just be pasted into an email or onto a message board or you go to 4chan or something like that, even if the government passed a law saying, well, you know what, we're just going to monitor every word sent between citizens, they couldn't do it. It could be printed out and handed to him. It could be texted to him over the phone 140 characters at a time. You can't do it. That means then that as citizens, as individuals, you have to take on that load, the load of being a free person and the load and the burden of going to that teenager and saying, hey, I see you've got a copy of Mein Kampf under your bed, which is a little weird. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Are you reading it out of curiosity? Are you reading it for school? Are you reading it because a skinhead gave it to you and sold you? Like when you read this, do you think Hitler is right? Let's talk about it. I want you to, I see you, you, you went and you watched a Fortnite streamer and that it turns out he's a white nationalist or something. <laughs> I see that the YouTube algorithm has delivered you in three videos from a Fortnite stream to a video on the great replacement of whites <laughs> with blacks in Europe. Since I cannot stop the YouTube algorithm, I can complain about it. We can lobby them. But since I right now cannot do anything to stop it and I can't stop you from watching those videos, let me arm you against what they're saying. Let's you and I talk about this. Let's talk about the same thing. If you catch him watching porn where it's a guy like abusing a woman, you know, something that you feel like it's unhealthy. It's unhealthy attitudes towards sex. Yeah. You got to talk to that kid. You got to communicate. And when I was a teenager, that's not how it worked. The whole deal with living in a Christian household was like, no, you just won't watch those movies. You're not going to see, you're not going to see a movie that has nudity in it. You're not going to see, read those magazines. That stuff will not be seen in this house. And even then, I still saw it. Well, good God, that was before the internet existed. That was back when you had to go to a physical bookstore to buy pornography and ask the person behind the counter, like, yes, I would like the pornography, please. Now, when it just appears on a device in your pocket, anytime you want it, no, the government's not going to stop that. It doesn't matter how harmful it is. It doesn't matter if it's if if it's a video on how to build a freaking bomb. You have to talk to that kid and you have to arm that kid against wanting to build the bomb. And I'm sorry, but there will always be authority figures. Whether it's a government or a church or a corporation or just some person in your life saying, "Don't worry. I'll take care of it. You give me the power." to regulate what people say, what they publish, I'll make sure that bad stuff doesn't poison your children's minds. Right. No, they can't. 
They don't have the ability to do that any more than Donald Trump had the ability to flip a switch and make a giant 100-foot wall appear at the southern border. There is no human being, there is no government, there is no force on earth that today has the power to actually stop the speech at the source. So that means that in this matter, and as in all sorts of matters, you have to be the type of person that can see the bad speech and you're raising children who can see the bad speech and can process it and let it bounce off of them and say, hey, you know what? That thing, that person tried to scare me just now. Uh, yeah, that was nonsense. That, that person who tried to scare me that, that Muslims are breeding out of control and are trying to take over, install Sharia law in America. Yeah, that's, that's not true. That guy's an idiot. And I know that guy's an idiot because I have been armed to recognize nonsense and lies and propaganda and scaremongering. I have been fortified due to my upbringing and my education and everything else to apply critical thinking and to not let my emotions get the better of me, to not let someone scare me into believing something grossly implausible. I now have a knee-jerk skeptical reaction rather than this knee-jerk fear reaction. But that is much, much, much harder than simply banning the material, which was the way we've tried to do it for most of human history up until now. And I think that is emblematic of the kind of thing where no matter what fear tells you, it's wrong. Yes, that is absolutely the roadmap to follow uh, going forward. And also, uh, as we kind of move toward rounding things off, I think uh, on top of being uh, less beholden to people who want to make you afraid in, in order to take things from you, it's also worth like taking a moment and just congratulating yourself each time you notice like a, a crisis being presented to you and then you manage to let it roll by or else like figure out what tangible things you can do about it. I, I think we don't congratulate ourselves enough when we handle something without without letting it freak us out and like keep us laying in bed all day. Like you're doing a good job when you do that. It is hard to live in the world. I know that we do episodes talking about how, you know, it's miraculous how much better food and shelter and clothing and healthcare and technology is than in generations past. There's no question right now in terms of mentally having to process the world, it's arguably as hard as, as ever. Yeah. There's so much to sort through And so many people have gotten very, very good at manipulating you because mass media is recent and social media is even more recent. We, uh, to a large degree as a society, have not developed the tools that we would need to basically survive in this environment. And so you see just so much anxiety and so much like bad coping mechanisms in terms of the ways we self-medicate and our our habits and that kind of thing, it is legitimately hard. I can prove that it's hard. We can we can see like the way people are living their lives now. Everything I think, including stuff that we don't necessarily tie to it, like obesity. I think is partly driven by it. I know that I eat when I get anxious, and I know that when I get anxious, there's you know a whole industry that's willing to sell me food that will make me feel better. So I get it. I know that someone lecturing you about being scared is just comes off as one more voice yelling at you and trying to make you feel bad <laughs> about yourself. I'm trying to frame it in a way in that 
Teaching yourself to not immediately be scared by things can be good for your mental health. Teaching yourself to be skeptical about something someone has wants you to be scared of, even if it seems like a really good cause. Like if someone says, hey, there are like roving bands of child molesters out there. Well, obviously no one's in favor of that. If that was true, it would be insane to not worry about it. But it's okay to stop and check if you if you first want to verify that the roving band of child molesters is real. That's not harming children when you do that. That's not saying that you don't care about children. That's saying you do care. Because you're saying, I only want to take action against the actual stuff. I'm not going to be as drawn to the exciting stories that are making me afraid just because they're exciting. Because long term, that's not making us healthier. It can make your morning more interesting when you're bored at work. I get that that's more interesting than your daily life in many ways, but it's not making you a better citizen in the long run. And if you wind up just constantly in a state of fear, even if all of your fears are related to things that are stuff you should worry about, like the safety of children or marginalized communities, if you're not taking the extra time and saying, okay, well, what can I actually do to help? Or is this particular story aimed in the wrong direction? As we have complained, or I personally have complained in previous podcasts, that we obsess over assault rifles and mass shootings, but not gun suicides, which kill hundreds and hundreds of times more people. Because that's not as interesting as a mass shooting that was live streamed on TV, but two-thirds of the gun deaths in America are suicides. But it's hard to get people interested in that. And so the thing you get people interested in is like school shootings. And so now you're holding a freaking mass shooting drill in your school and terrifying a bunch of nine-year-olds over something that is incredibly unlikely. Meanwhile, the coping mechanisms that will cause some of those kids to kill themselves as teenagers, you are not giving them because you're too obsessed with the exotic threat, which is a mass shooting with an assault rifle rather than the mundane threat, which is anxiety and depression and the other things that cause people to take their own lives. It's almost that FDR thing of the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But with the addendum of we have a fear budget and budget it toward the important stuff. And then everything else is just people trying to trying to get your vote. Don't worry about it. Yeah. To get your vote or or money so that we're not sounding too much like like libertarians to get your vote or to get your money or to get you to attend their church or to stay in a marriage with them. If your spouse is saying, well, if you leave, you know, you'll be dead within a year. People trying to scare you into doing stuff for them. They don't just have to work for the government. It can be that you, that is all around you because it works. Making yourself a less fearful person will make you a better person. And I'm going to stop letting my hitman pressure me into paying for more hits. That's enough. Just Jason. Being then we're all grossly, seven. grossly overcharged. <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for diving deep into a lot of things that are super relevant to life today. Also, some tales I forgot, especially the uh, panic about Satan being in rock music. It's mostly something I've read about. It's also hilarious. And if someone told you to worry about that, 
like he said, I think there was a basic normal worry of this one Gene Simmons song is kind of gross type thing they could have told you instead. You know, take that into account next time they tell you to be horribly afraid of, you know, a trans person. In our footnotes, you will find the link to Jason's column that sparked this entire episode. The title of that column is Freedom Sucks and That's Why We Have to Defend It. So it's uh, very easy to find and it's right there on the site crack.com. And I think it's an excellent piece of writing about uh, basically everything that's going to be important the rest of the year as we decide who to vote for for lots of different offices, not just the presidency. You'll also find statistics and other sources on the various things we cited, such as the voter turnouts for 2018 and 2019 elections. I still don't really know why a couple of governor's races and legislative races happen in the odd-numbered year after the midterms in specific states, uh, but it's a thing that's going on. That's also just weird. It's nice to know extra things to be a, uh, a nerd about politics in a good way and understand the world better. Beyond all that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered and edited by the one and only Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where, if you are an American, here's the thing. If you have a social media account and you go and give a follow to, like, your local state-level legislator or candidate for it, or, you know, follow their Twitter or their Instagram or something, I think that would kind of make their day. They tend to have almost no followers, and the candidate you like would be very excited about it. And the same goes for you if you're, uh, you know, British, Canadian, Australian, and some other country, and uh, want to follow the extremely local politician or MP representing you. They will be, like, legitimately thrilled. Some intern will feel like they did a good job of the social account. Just a tip for making a politician's day. There you go. And, uh, you know, my own Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. It would make my day if you followed me. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitztagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and so much more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then.